you would open up your Bibles, please, we will be in Matthew chapter 18, continuing on in our sermon, the discussion of the Lord's most concentrated sermon on the subject of how Christians are to get along with one another. Do you think we need this sermon? Mm, Just look about and see how many churches there are, and I guess that would tell us right there that we do need to learn how to get along with one another. This sermon we have entitled The Sermon on Being Children of God, and it is found most concentrated in Matthew chapter 18, verses 3 to 35. Who did the Lord speak this sermon to? His 12 disciples following a dispute that they had had over who among them was to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You can read about that little dispute over in Mark 9.34. Now, if you remember, there are four main divisions in our outline for this seventh recorded sermon in our Life of Christ study. The first we discussed back in lesson number 80, and it addressed the subject of humility. Why does it seem that we always go back to that subject? The subject of poverty of spirit. It's because humility is the key virtue in the Christian life. He took a small child unto himself, and he declared, the Lord declared to his men, following their dispute, that a person enters into and is considered great in his eternal kingdom by becoming like a little child in his or her humility and in his or her submission or dependence on the father, on their father. And we call this first division of our outline being servants, not celebrities. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, be a servant. Be a servant unto others. Don't desire the celebrity status. You don't want to be a somebody. You want to be a nobody. And then you're a somebody in God's eyes. All right, then in lesson number 81, we discussed the protection of believers. His severe warning was that we should not cause one of God's little ones, and who are his little ones? Not only literal little children, but anyone who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ is a, is a little one. He said we are not to cause even one of God's little ones to be offended. Believers are to be stepping stones, not what? Not stumbling blocks. We're to be stepping stones to others' spiritual maturity. We do not want to be stumbling blocks. So we want to be servants, not celebrities, stepping stones, not stumbling blocks. Then in the the previous lesson was part one of lesson number 82, entitled Preserving Family Unity. And we discussed the subject of caring for fellow believers. Not only are we not to cause one of God's little ones to spiritually stumble or to be offended by our testimony in either word or deed, not something we say or do, but remember we also discussed that neither are we to hold any negative thoughts about a fellow believer. We're not to despise one of the Lord's little ones. And we talked about how the word despise means that we're not even to look down on someone else, a fellow believer, as being um, inferior to us or unworthy of our consideration. We're, we are to be sympathetics, not scorners. If, a, if another one has strayed or has, has a problem, a, 
a fellow believer. We're not to scorn them and look down on them because of that. We're to encourage them. We're to be sympathetic toward them. We're to help them, right? Not to be scorners, but sympathetics. All, we learned also that all of God's little ones are valuable to him. And this is what the Lord discussed in verses 10 to 14. And to show the value of his own, the Lord spoke of the believer's relationship, first of all, to the, who? Right, to the holy angels. They are our ministering spirits. They are our guarding angels. He showed our relationship to the holy angels. Then he showed or talked about our relationship to himself. And he is pictured as the son of man, the good shepherd who came to save, to seek that which was lost. And also our relationship to God the Father, whose will it is that not one of his little ones should perish. And of course, included in his discussion of the value of those who belong to him was his first time giving of the parable of the lost sheep. I say first time giving because it's recorded for us again over in Luke 15. Now, I'm sure the Lord, as he spoke to different crowds of people during his ministry, gave that parable over and over again as he, you know, spoke all of the parables on more than one occasion. But it is recorded for us in the scripture in two different locations. In this occasion, he spoke it to his his disciples. And um, the lost sheep was a true Christian, one who had just strayed from the fold. And we learned that we are not only to um, take heed that we cause no other believer to spiritually stumble, but neither are we to despise a fellow believer when he does stumble and fall or when he strays from the fold. We are to do, just like our example, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd, we are to do all we can to bring that one back into the safety of the fold. We talked about how the Lord is our example in everything, isn't he? He's our example. He, he said, except you become like a little child, you cannot even enter into the kingdom of heaven. And he showed us by his example, didn't he, about humility, because he literally left heaven's glory to become a little child, you know, and laid there in a uh, borrowed manger. He became the despised Bethlehem babe. Talk about showing us by example. And he also taught us, um, he, was, he made himself, even though he was God, he made himself of no reputation. I don't think you can condescend any more than that. I don't think there's a great, well, I know there isn't a greater picture of humility than that. But he was also our example of how to care for the sheep. He is the good shepherd who was willing to even make the ultimate sacrifice to bring in his sheep and the ones who had gone astray. And didn't we all, weren't we all astray? All we like sheep have gone astray. So instead of focusing on greatness, the Lord's words were intended to get his men to understand the importance of being servant-hearted, spiritually sympathetic, sacrificial shepherds over the flock to which Christ was going to entrust them. I mean, here they were arguing about who was going to be top sheep. And we said, you know, big deal, being top sheep, head of all the dumb sheep. And they should have been focusing on the, he was going to entrust his whole church to them. They were to be the shepherds of the entire flock. They needed to get this. These were important words he was speaking to them. Did they get it? Well, not right away, because in a few 
a few more lessons, we're going to see that they're arguing all over again about who's going to be the greatest, who's going to get the, the prominent seats on his right and his left hand. But the good news is that they did eventually get it, didn't they? They eventually did get it, and that's, that's wonderful. <laughs> so to this point in this sermon, the Lord had declared that a person enters and is considered great in his kingdom by becoming like a little child. That's in verses 1 to 4. And that once in the kingdom, believers are to be protected like little children. That's basically what he talked about in verses 5 to 9. And we are to be cared for like little children. That's what he talked about in verses 10 to 14. And now in the fourth division of our outline, he even declares that we are to be, uh-oh, disciplined like little children. You know, just as children in our homes need to be disciplined. Yes, spare the rod and you spoil the child. I hope you all understand that children need discipline. Children love structure and children need discipline. So just as they need discipline, so God's children, his little ones in his church need discipline. And I believe that this is probably one of the most neglected ministries these days in the church, church-wide, is, is um, obedience to Christ's command about church discipline. But it's taught. We're going to look at that. Now, you know, if I had my way, this would be one of those subjects that I would avoid. I would skip over. This is one of the disadvantages to a teacher when you teach through something methodically, expositionally, like we're doing verse by verse. You get to these subjects that you would rather just, mm, let's jump over this one. <laughs> but um, it's an advantage, really, because we need to know the whole counsel of God, don't we? So this morning, I know you're all excited about this, but we're going to be talking about discipline, church discipline. It's not only taught by the Lord Jesus Christ here, but it's also taught repeatedly in the New Testament epistles, such as in 1 Corinthians 5, you can read about church discipline, 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 6 to 16, 2 Timothy 2, 23 to 26, uh, it's also in 1 Timothy 5, I believe, and in Titus 3.10. There are numerous places where church discipline is discussed. So we've looked at, <clears throat> last time we looked at despising not the family of God. And this morning we're going to talk about discipline within the family of God. So if you'll look with me, I want to read verses 15 to 20 of Matthew 18. <clears throat> Okay, starting at verse 15 of Matthew 18, the Lord said, Moreover, if thy brother, now notice the word brother. And when in this discussion, we are talking about a Christian. This is about not someone outside of the church, not about a non-believer, but this is if your brother trespass against you. So this is Christian sinning against Christian. He says, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, Go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, if he still doesn't listen to the witnesses that you brought with you, you went back to him, 
Then Jesus says, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. Publican was a tax collector. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say unto you that if two, are, if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. All right, discipline within the family of God. After talking about, if you remember, part of this sermon was over in Mark chapter 9. And in Mark 9.50, the Lord had talked about the saltiness of the believer. We are to be salty Christians, aren't we? We're to make others thirst for the things of God. After he talked about the saltiness of the believer, he commanded those who belong to him to be at peace with one another. Now, it's very hard to be a salty Christian if you're always at odds with people, if you're very argumentative, if there's no peace within you and you always are starting fights and you're striving and you're not gentle. It's very difficult to be a salty Christian. You don't like to be near people who are like that. <clears throat> All right, so he commanded us to be at peace. Here's what he said. He said, have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. But since the Lord is omniscient and knows everything, he knew that stumbling would occur. He knew that brother would offend brother. After all, his disciples had just been offending one another in their argument, and they had offended that other man who had been casting out demons in the name of Christ. So he knew these things would happen. And so he proceeded to tell his 12 how divisions and conflicts among believers could be resolved and reconciled so that the unity of the family would be preserved. What family are we talking about? The family of God. Now, in these six verses, verses 15 to 20, the Lord gives to us the necessary steps involved in godly biblical discipline of those who have stumbled, strayed, or caused someone else to stumble or stray, you know, have trespassed against another believer. Sinning against a brother or a sister in the Lord is of great concern to God Almighty. It is so serious that if the offending brother refuses to rectify the matter by repenting, asking for forgiveness, he is to be severely disciplined. However, when dealing with the subject of church discipline, two critical points are necessary for us to understand. First of all, I reemphasize that the sinning brother is a brother. He is a brother in Christ, or the sinning sister is a sister in Christ. They are a genuine believer. The breach is between two genuine believers, as far as we can tell, because, you know, you can't read everybody's heart, but as far as, as we can tell... The argument would be between two genuine believers who are in the church. They're within the fold, the, um, the body of Christ. And the trespass is a personal one. It is a personal offense. It's not like a criminal offense where somebody murders, somebody murders someone in your family. You know, that has to go to the court system. We're talking here about um, personal offenses. That is the, the wrong and the harm done 
are against another person at a personal level. <clears throat> a fellow Christian believer is um, injured emotionally or, or socially, you know, in front of others, or, or spiritually hurt, damaged in some way. I found this list in one of my books that says, um, how does a Christian brother trespass or offend another brother and, and be disciplined in the way the Lord talks about here, not going through the court system? Well, some of the ways would be by offending another one's conscience. We talked about that. You know, you can flaunt your liberties in front of another believer, perhaps a weaker brother or a sister, and offend their conscience or grieve their spirit or um, be a stumbling block to them, as we talked about, just being a bad example. You can confront, and I hope you don't do this, but the, the ways you can um, um, trespass against another believer would be to confront him face-to-face -face in an insulting manner, you know, just insult him, uh, abuse him um, verbally. I guess if it got into the physical realm, it would, it would go in further than, than this situation. But you could humiliate him or her, degrade them, argue with them as the disciples were doing, uh, show disrespect for him or her, show bitterness, be angry at them, um, be hostile toward them. It says also that you can tear somebody down behind their back, talk about them behind their back. You can lie to them or lie about them, you know, uh, gossip about them, murmur about them, criticize them, spread rumors about them. You can encroach on their rights or their property. Uh, you can deceive them, cheat them. You can maybe bypass them, on, you know, maybe at the workplace. You just bypass over them, even though they should maybe be promoted. I'm just giving you some examples. You might bypass them by just ignoring them. Um, you could steal from them in a way where it wouldn't go to the court system, like steal, steal their job or maybe steal their wife. Now, that would be getting pretty serious, but uh, you can envy them. And I'm just giving you some, some examples of how of what we're talking about in this particular situation about church discipline. <clears throat> God has one great concern. He wants peace restored. He wants peace between brothers in Christ. He wants peace within the family of God, within his church. The disturbance caused by two offending brothers or sisters is so damaging that God lays down very specific steps. These are very specific. There's actually four steps in this process as to how this matter is to be uh, uh, handled, how it is to be addressed. First of all, he made it very clear in verse 15 that the believer who has been sinned against is to take the initiative. Now, again, it seems like so many things the Lord does and tells us are topsy-turvy from the world. You would think that it would be the one who offended, the one who trespassed, against the other who would go to the person and apologize. And that does happen, doesn't it? But here he's saying, you know, if there has been nothing, the offender hasn't come to you and apologized, the one who has been offended is to take the initiative and to go to the other person. He is to go personally and he is to go privately to the individual who has wronged him or her and in a spirit of humility... Remember, that's the key virtue. You don't go there. You don't go to the person with your hand on your hip, you know, and your finger in their face. You go in a spirit of humility, 
making sure you've taken that beam out of your own eye first, and uh, and love. Of course, you're supposed to go in a spirit of love and in meekness, as we're told in Galatians six one, and with the motive and the willingness of winning that winning back that brother or sister, not with the motive of trying to win the argument. That's the wrong way to go to them. Don't go to them if you have that motive, that you want to win the argument and show that they were wrong and that they need to say, I forgive you. You want to go to them in a total spirit of Christ-likeness, wanting to, to, um, to remove the breach that has occurred between the two of you. You want to win them back as your brother or sister, you know, as in fellowship with yourself and with God, of course. Now, you know there are, and and probably the reason that the Lord said that the one who's been offended should take the initiative is because a lot of times uh, a person who has offended another person may not know that they did that. There are sins of ignorance that we can commit. Uh, David, um, not David, David talked about secret faults. We all have secret faults. We all have our our, uh, blind spots, don't we, where we can't see our our um, our own sins. And, and David, I pray for that because I can't sometimes see. My husband's pretty good at telling me about them. But um, there, David had a prayer in Psalm 19:12 where he said, Cleanse thou me from secret faults. You know, Lord, help me to know my own secret faults. I know over the course of, of history, of my history, that I have offended people and sometimes didn't even know about it. There are sins of ignorance that we can commit. And that's talked about, even the Old Testament recognized sins of ignorance. You know, the people were to go to the altar and um, present sacrifices for their sins of ignorance, the sins they did that they weren't even aware of. I remember one time when I was in church and um, I walked by a girl sitting in the front pew and I said, hi, how are you today? She looked at me and said, fine. And I said, not really fine, are you? She said, no, I'm not. And the way she said it gave me this little, you know, a little light bulb went off. Hmm, she's not happy with me. And I said, is it something I have done? And she said, yes, it is. I I mean, talk about a sin of ignorance. I hadn't, I didn't have a clue that she was mad at me, that I had done anything to offend her. I didn't know. So you can see the advantage of, she should have come, according to the Bible, she should have come to me privately and told me what it was that I did that offended her. Turns out to be, we were were able to resolve the situation once I knew about it. I told her I was very, very sorry. I had no idea that I offended her because I didn't sit with her in church. I didn't know she wanted me to sit with her in church, you know, so... uh, Anyway, so the, the Lord is very wise in telling the one who's been offended to go to the person. So the first step in correcting an offending brother is to attempt reconciliation privately and immediately. Immediately. As soon as, you know, as soon as after the thing has happened that you can get your heart right, you should go to that person. Note when a brother disturbs or offends us, we do not wait on the offending brother to come to us. We are to go to them. And as I said, we're to go to them as soon as we can. Now, don't go to them while you still have any anger in your heart. Make sure you pray. All of this, this whole step, you'll see at the beginning, he talks, I mean, at the end, he talks about prayer. Everything in this situation is to be bathed in prayer. From the minute the offense occurs, you should start praying 
and then get other people. Once, If you have to move to the second stage, you ask other people to also pray with you about the situation. But you do go to the brother alone. That's what the Lord meant when he said between thee and him alone. And the Greek word is mono, alone, nobody else. And you are to tell him his fault. <clears throat> now this, again, as I said, may seem to indicate that he doesn't know that he has offended you. Um, and the reason we're to do this immediately or as soon as we possibly can is because the, the division and the damaging effects of the division will only grow and worsen with time. Have you ever found that to be true? Yes. The more time involved, the worse the situation seems to get. And something else can happen. Our own mind and our heart can begin to brood about the situation. And we can poison ourselves with bitterness if we let time elapse. We can become resentful toward that other person. Oh, how dare she humiliate me like that? How dare she talk about me like that? And we lose sleep at night. We, you know, the bitterness just grows and grows and we become very resentful and grudging and even revengeful. We can get all these little plots and plans in our minds about how we're going to get revenge. And we'll talk about how, the different ways we can do that. So we desperately need to resolve the situation just as soon as we can. Now remember, the person is to be approached alone. We are not to share the matter with anyone else, nor are we to go openly to rebuke him. You know, to rebuke him, you could say, well, I'm doing it privately, but you're in the middle of a church parking lot or something with people all around. <laughs> No, you're to go in private somewhere to him first. Don't discuss the situation with your friends. Don't discuss it with your husband. Don't discuss it with anyone. That's what the Lord said between you and him alone. Um, and as I said, also, we are to go humbly. We are to search our own hearts to see if we did anything that caused our offending brother um, to do to, do what he did to us. You know, we may not be totally innocent in the situation. We need to really, because a lot of times it takes two to tango, right? It's not always totally one-sided. We have, we may have a sin of ignorance that we weren't aware of or a secret fault. So we need to search our own heart. And if we did something that caused that one to say or do what he did, when we go to them, we should admit that. Say, now I know I, maybe I had something to do with this. Maybe I did give an appearance of evil and I'm sorry for that. You know, go with the right spirit. Go in the spirit of humility. And this is very important. Be soft-spoken and gentle. A soft answer turns away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. I have to tell you what, ha what I saw last week. It was just amazing. I was, um, my husband ran into a grocery store and I have, I have something on my foot that was really bothering me, so I stayed in the car. I said, you just run in and get whatever it was, and, and I'll wait out here in the car. Well, I was very entertained while I was sitting there in the car because uh, there were two elderly people who had both parked in handicapped places um, with the front ends of their cars like this. Well, one, the, a man and his, his wife were unloading groceries into their car, and the woman in this car had, got, had unloaded her groceries and she took her shopping cart and instead of pushing it all the way to where you put the carts, you know, in those little racks, she put her shopping cart 
in front of her car and a little bit of wind came along and what do you think happened? The cart gently tapped the front of that man's car and he just went ballistic. I mean, he just lost it. This man had to have been in, easily in his 70s, but he just was foul. I mean, he just laid into her and she was already in the car, you know, getting ready to start the ignition in her windows, but you could hear it. I mean, and I was like two cars over and I'm watching all this. And I thought, he's just, and his wife looked so embarrassed, you know, but, and I thought, well, that woman's just going to leave, you know, she's just going to back up and leave, but no. <laughs> she, she got out of her car and she laid into him as bad as he had laid into her. And there was this big blowout. It was so childish. It was so immature. It was so needless. But they were arguing with one another and using foul language. And I just, I was at the point where I was just about, you know, I was thinking about blessed are the peacemakers. And I was just thinking about maybe getting out of my car and going over to them and saying, do you know how ridiculous this is? Because his car wasn't down. But just at that point, she got in her car and she pulled off. Oh, no. You know what she did before she pulled out? She went forward. She turned her car on and she went forward and she pushed that cart just a little bit further into his car. <laughs> and then she backed up and left. Oh, and he was furious. And I know neither one of them had any peace the whole rest of that day. They were so full of anger toward each other. And I thought, well, well, that's a perfect you know, example. I don't think they were probably brothers and sisters in Christ. I certainly hope not. But, you know, a soft answer would have been so much easier. You know, lady, I, I really wish you wouldn't have done that. It would have been nicer if you put the cart over there, you know. Some, but mm, remember that. Don't go to somebody screaming and yelling. That certainly isn't going to resolve the situation at all, is it? Soft answer, soft answer. I'm the one who has to tell myself this over and over again. <laughs> Coming from my Greek ethnic background, you know, all we ever did was yell at each other from across the mountaintops, you know, the hilltops. <laughs> Seems like it's in our blood to be loud, but it says, remember this verse from last time, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. If we just could remember that. Another verse <clears throat> that I'm trying to memorize, and I just go blank every time I try to do this, but um, is 2 Timothy 2.24. It says, And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient. Memorize that verse like I, I'm trying to because I need to say that to myself anytime I want to strive with somebody. Remember, we should not strive. Um, we should also express when we go to the other person, we should express our desire for understanding and for straightening out the matter. You know, I really want to resolve this issue with you. I really don't like the breach that this has caused in our relationship. Let's settle this as brothers and sisters in Christ. I know one time after we had lived where we lived for um, 30, well, we've lived where we've lived our whole married lives, 31 years. But we had been there, when this happened, 21 years on our property. And one day I was sitting in my reading chair, which is in a glassed-in room, and, and I saw two men on our property. We have a little pond behind our house, and I saw two men walking down there. And um, 
<clears throat> and I, I was a little bit disconcerted because I'm alone a lot, you know, and I'm out in the woods, and I, what are these men doing down there? And so I went out on my patio, and I shouted down. You know, this is where the loud mouth comes in handy. You know, I didn't even need a megaphone. I shouted down, and what are you doing down there? Who are you? And one of them shouted back and said, this is my land. <laughs> and I thought, I don't want to argue with him. You know, there's two of them, one of me. So I just went back in the house and one, you know, my husband, I called my husband and he didn't have a clue what was going on. But anyway, to make a long story short, this man decided to have a surveyor come and resurvey the land and decided that part of our pond and some of our acreage belonged to him, not to us. After 21 years, you know, you have squatters' rights, if nothing else. <laughs> but we, you know, rather than take the situation to court, because this was supposedly a fellow believer. He, he went to another church near us, and um, we don't know him very well, but he was a professing Christian. And my husband did the right thing. He went to him in an understanding manner. And I was so proud of him because this isn't like typical Frank, you know. <laughs> I said, you're growing, Frank. You're growing spiritually. He went to the man and he said, let's resolve this as brothers in Christ. You know, we, there's no need for us to take this to the court system. And we really felt we could have won the situation after 21 years. And Anyhow, my husband gave him five acres for only three. So, you know, we came out in the negative, but we did it. My husband did it because he wanted to reconcile the, um, the situation in the right manner, and I was very, very proud of him for doing that. All right, so I'm just giving you some personal examples. When a brother offends us, our response is very important to Christ. Our response is important. Now, there are four, resp four. <laughs> four responses that are common to human flesh. And we all still live in human bodies, don't we? So our flesh nature likes to take over. You won't find these in your books, so there's no sense even looking for them. One, the first response is a self-centered response. We can act like these older people in the parking lot that I saw last week. We can act very babyish about it, very immature. Um, we can act like a, a martyr. Now, my mother had this problem. I think a lot of women have this martyr thing, you know. Oh, well, I'll just take it. I'll just be the martyr in this situation. And um, that doesn't resolve anything. Or we can, we can um, brood about it. You know, this is all self-centered. This is all a self-centered response. We can brood about it. We can hatch it. We can ponder on the evil and the hurt done to us. We can become so consumed with the wrong done to us. You know, just keep our minds on that personal injury until the whole mess poisons our hearts and our minds. It may not even bother the other person at all. We're doing more damage to ourselves. They may not even know, like in my case several times, didn't even know what I had done. So, but remember, this is a common tendency for all of us, so we have to fight these kinds of response, the self-centered response. Also, there's another response. It's called the withdrawing response. That's where you give your um, offending brother or sister the, sullen, the silent treatment. You know, you just avoid them. You don't talk to them. Um, you give them the silent routine. Perhaps you even fear to face them. You just rather avoid them than, than face the situation and try to resolve it. So you don't associate with, well, I'll never call her again. 
Never, ever, ever, ever in my whole life will I call her. And, um, and there's the gossiping response. <clears throat> this is a self-justifying sharing, you know, a self-vindicating sharing. It's a tendency to share hurt and evil and the wrong done to you. You share it with your close friends. Maybe you even carry it further than that. You share it with anybody who will listen to you. And, of course, when you share, you always present yourself as the blameless, innocent victim, don't you? I mean, that's just, it's just a human response. The problem with sharing this, whatever it is that has happened to you, this, this division, the problem with sharing it with others is that it is in direct disobedience to the command of Christ. Because what did he say to do? If your brother or sister has trespassed against you, go to him, just you and him alone, or you and her alone. Nobody else is to be involved. Gossiping, talking about it with anybody else is totally wrong until you have first gone to that person. Then, of course, the second stage we'll talk about, you go to two others if they don't listen. But the first response, you just go to the him alone. Um, and then there's the retaliating response. That's like the lady did in the car, you know, when she went forward and pushed that cart just a little bit further into that man's car. This is when you try to get vengeance. You know, well, they've hurt me, they've humiliated me, they've talked about me, they've caused me to stumble, or whatever the situation is, and I am going to get back. I'm going to... Um, and, and the problem with that is that you are, not only is vengeance belongs to the Lord, but you are lowering, lowering yourself to this, the, the level of the wrongdoer. You're on the same level with him if you do that, and it, it's wrong. All right, so the goal of the private visit is to bring the offender to the point of repentance and reconciliation so that the division doesn't become permanent. You don't want it to be permanent. You want it to be temporary. Family unity, fa the family of God, unity needs to be preserved. And with God's grace, the one is to seek to help the other in the same way that he would want to be helped if the situation was reversed. You know, it says in Proverbs 27, 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend. And that's true. You know, your best friends are those who will honestly wound you sometimes by telling you the truth about yourself. My husband is my best friend, but nobody has wounded me as much as him because he will listen to me, my tapes, and he'll tell me, ah, you shouldn't have said that, you should have said this. You know, he'll, he'll tell me the truth. But he is my best friend. Wounds are good when they're done in the right spirit and to edify, to help us, right? So you ha you're blessed if you have a friend who is honest with you and tells you your faults in the right spirit. So if the offender listens and he admits his wrong and asks forgiveness, then Jesus says you have gained your brother. This happened. Does this work? Yes, it can work. Everybody has to have the right spirit and they have to want to be growing spiritually, but it can work. Um, Peter did wrong as far as the Gentiles were concerned. You know, he drew away from eating with Gentiles because of the Judaizers and, and um and Paul rebuked him. Paul went to him and rebuked him for that. And he gained his brother because later on in one of his epistles, Peter called Paul his beloved brother. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. 
Okay, so if he admits his wrong and asks forgiveness, then you've gained your brother or your sister and everything is fine and dandy. You've preserved the family unity. However, if he should refuse to make reconciliation, then the one who has been offended is free to honestly share his burden with one or two spiritually mature, confidential, and dependable believers. Now, in this situation, you don't want to go to somebody who's a brand new Christian or a spiritual babe. You want to go to someone who's mature in this, in, um, and ask their prayerful counsel uh, in this situation. Now, they, as they join you in wanting to resolve this, this breach, they may, now they're going to be more objective than you, which is good. You want two objective people. And they'll be able to look at the situation from outside, you know, and maybe they will assess that you don't really have anything to be offended about. Maybe you're just overly sensitive. You know, I always think of the verse, Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. I know that as I grow in the Lord, I let more and more things just roll off my back. Do you find that to be true? Now, when I was younger and all those um, hormones were just a rolling, <laughs> I would blow up so easily. But thank goodness the hormones are basically over now. And, <laughs> and it's a whole lot easier to, 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 um, to not strive. But um, they may assess the situation saying, well, there's, there has been no sin committed here. Uh, maybe they will know some additional information about the problem that you didn't know. And maybe they'll be able to, you know, help you see it more clearly. But if they feel that it is true that, the, uh, that you have been wronged, then together you and your one or two witnesses are to return to the offender and once again, in all the right spirit and bathed in prayer, you are try to, to try to win him. Um, and, and make reconciliation. And so in this way, it is not just the word of the offended against the offender. There are witnesses. There will be witnesses. So, witnesses. so the second step in an attempt at reconciliation is to go to the brother with witnesses. Now, did you know that some Christians are stubborn? <laughs> yes, all of us have our little stubborn sides. Um, and some Christians are immature, <clears throat> and others are gripped by selfish and sinful motives and behavior. Therefore, an offending brother may not be willing to be reconciled or willing to admit his wrong. And in such cases, one or two loving and wise brothers are to be taken with us to this offending brother. And this... It does several things. This act does several things. Number one, it shows the, the offender that there are other people who are uh, there to help. They care about the situation and they want to help. It's not just a one-on-one -on -one thing. Other people are, are there and want to show their love and concern over the, the breach in the family. Remember, this is all about keeping family unity. Secondly, it shows that the offense is known by more than just one person. It's now known by at least two or three people. <clears throat> it also provides objective and wise counsel between the two differing parties. 
and agreement and reconciliation is more likely to arise from this. You know, you need somebody who's objective, don't you, a lot of times, because both parties will think they're in the right. So you need to have someone else to come in to prevent bias or, um, you know, partiality. Witnesses can see the situation from an unbiased perspective. Now, it's important to remember that this second step should never, ever, ever be taken until the brother has been, first of all, approached alone. We're not to talk about or share a brother or sister's wrong with anyone else, not until we have sat down with him or her personally first. I keep stressing that because that is so important. However, this second step, this taking of two or three witnesses, this step is to be taken if the offender persists in his divisiveness. But it is always, always, again, to be done in a spirit of humility and love and care and understanding our own personal unworthiness. The, the basic procedure for confirming facts in a dispute or in an allegation of wrongdoing had been set forth back in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 19.15, it had been set forth by Moses and was therefore familiar to every Jew. You see, the Lord is speaking these uh, steps of discipline to his disciples. They were Jewish. They understood that Moses had laid down grounds for discipline within the synagogue or between, you know, there wasn't a synagogue until after the captivity, but among Israel there were these steps. So this wouldn't have been something totally alien to their thinking. To guard against a person being slanderously or spitefully accused of a a sin or an offense that he did not commit, the Mosaic law required that at least two or three witnesses must verify any charge that was brought against someone. And that was just an important protection against the false accusation of an innocent person. Because somebody can be falsely accused, right? Now, in the context of the Lord's instructions, if the testimony of the two or three witnesses becomes necessary, it is not only to confirm that the sin was indeed committed, but also to confirm to confirm that the sinning believer was properly rebuked and that he has or has not repented. You know, maybe after your visit to the person privately, maybe he repented on his own and you just don't know about it yet. So these two witnesses could confirm, oh, he has repented or he has not. They'll confirm where he is. It should be hoped that the one or two who are brought along to confront the offender, will not have to become public witnesses. You hope that they don't have to become public witnesses against the man before the rest of the church, but that their added rebuke will be sufficient to induce in the offender a change of heart and that he will then repent. You know, Paul told Timothy to not receive an accusation against an elder without um, the witness, at least two or three witnesses. So if somebody accuses an elder of a church or, let's say, a pastor of a church, he said to Timothy, don't accept it without at least two or three witnesses as to the accusation. But those who continued in sin 
Paul went on to tell Timothy, those who continue to sin were to be rebuked in the presence of all, in other words, in front of the whole church, so that the rest, the rest of the body of Christ, would be fearful of sinning. That would be a real, um, I can't think of the word, wake up. Yeah, thank you. It would be a real wake up, you know. Um, For example, if we had more capital punishment, it would be a wake up call to people not to commit crimes, right? Not to murder others. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Well, if somebody like a pastor of a church who has sinned grievously, if, if he is rebuked in front of the whole body, the body, well, no, I shouldn't even just say a pastor, although he referred to elders here, um, and you're rebuked in front of the whole church, that's going to make other people in the church say, ooh, I don't, I don't want to sin because I don't want to be brought before the whole church. Anyway, you can read about that in 1 Timothy 5, verses 19 and 20. So, if the second stage of the discipline process fails to bring repentance, if the offender does not listen to the two or three additional witnesses, then what are they to do, as we just talked about? They are to tell it to the church. The first rebuke is to be completely private. Then the second rebuke is what we could call semi-private because it's just with two or three. But the third is public as far as being before the church, not the public, meaning public of the outside world, but public before the church. The brother or sister is to be brought before the whole congregation to be further rebuked and encouraged to repent. See, the main thing here is not for punishment. It's, be, it's for um, repentance and to bring that straying sheep back into fellowship with the Lord and with other believers. So the whole church is then responsible to try to attempt to call that person back to holiness and to do so aggressively, you know, to aggressively plead with him to repent Before the fourth step becomes necessary. What's the fourth step? Putting that one outside of the church. You know, so once the whole church knows, then everybody in the church can can be praying for that one and can be doing everything they can to bring him or her back into the fold. And this is the second time now, only the second time in our Life of Christ study, that the Lord has talked about his church. Remember, he mentioned it for the first time in Matthew 16. Now, for the second time, he talks about his church. Now, his church hasn't started yet, has it? He hasn't even died, gone to the cross. You know, hasn't, his church was not established until the day of Pentecost. But he knows the future, you see? So here he is prophetically talking about what he knew would take place later on in the church, the future days of his church. He knew there would be divisions and problems in his church. so um, And notice how much growth there is in sin that is not dealt with honestly. You, you see what was merely, to begin with, a matter between two people, right? It was just between two people to begin with. Now, then it grew to involve four or five people because you had the offender, the offendee, and two or three witnesses. So you have four or five people. And then, if the person doesn't repent, it spread to involve the whole church. Now, the the Lord's disciples, remember, I told you already, they were Jewish, and they would have known about the Mosaic law in this matter, but they also would have been raised in the Jewish synagogue. 
and they were familiar with congregational discipline. So all this is not something totally new. Remember what they would do in a synagogue if somebody sinned? Well, depending on the sin, sometimes they were just done with the problem because they'd stone them to death. But um, they would excommunicate them. And I guess that's basically what this is, excommunicating, you know, putting a person out of the fellowship of the body. Now, why would Christ say that personal offenses are to be taken before the church and made public as far as the fold is concerned? Why would he say this? I mean, it sounds pretty hard, doesn't it? Well, the offending brother has already refused two appeals for reconciliation. The first appeal of the offended person himself and the second appeal by one or two loving and wise witnesses. Secondly, the offending brother's refusal to be reconciled is a serious threat, and it's a danger. If the breach continues unresolved, it will cause more division and more harm within and without the church. You know, other lives will be affected, both among the saved And the lost. Do people out there in the world hear about what goes on within churches when churches have divisions? Yes, somehow or another, they they always seem to hear about it. The testimony of the church and of those involved in the division will be, be weakened. And the interest of the unsaved will be soured and dampened and perhaps even extinguished. How many people have not come to Christ because they've heard about fights between Christians or Christians, prominent Christians who have fallen. It it does great damage to the body of Christ. The tongues of carnal believers will be set aflame. You know, there are carnal believers in the church, and they love to talk about things. A brother who trespasses against another brother and causes division within the church and who refuses to be reconciled, commits a serious offense that affects many lives, whether he realizes it or not. And because of this, the matter has to be dealt with step by step as the Lord gave it to us. It cannot be ignored and it cannot be left resolved. Now, are they left unresolved and ignored nowadays? Yes, because I guess there is very, very little church discipline that actually goes on in the church today. The church, you know, globally. Very little church discipline. Taking a person's behavior before the church, whether this is the church as a whole or perhaps some official committee of the church, which is what some do, but the Lord really said the church, so he's talking about the whole church. Uh, Taking a person's behavior before the church is a very, very serious matter. In fact, it is about as serious a matter as can be imagined within the fold, within the body of the Lord Jesus. But what Christ is after has to be kept in mind. He wants to keep the sin, the division, the devastation from spreading and destroying the lives and the testimonies of others. He wants the two brothers to be reconciled with each other and with God, and he wants the offending brother to be restored into the care and the fellowship of the church. Again, remember, this is in the context of the sheep that strayed from the ninety and nine. He wants to prevent giving the world a reason for setting their tongues on fire and spreading rumors that damage the image 
and the work of his church. He wants the two brothers and their close friends and fellow church members to build a strong witness to the world, not a divided witness. And two things are essential for a church, and I talk about a local church body, to reach the maximum number of people who it should be reaching. Number one is love. Loving brother, brother, loving brother in the Lord. Isn't this the new commandment that the Lord gave to his men? By this shall they know that you are my disciples indeed, if you have love one for another. And secondly, a strong witness and a testimony by the brothers of the church. Christ wants differences and divisiveness settled among his own people. He does not want their differences to be settled by the world's legal system, the legal system, the court system of this world, which is carnal, <clears throat> and man conceived. You know, it, the, the court system of this world consists of um, a man conceived philosophies and arguments. And it never really, the atmosphere of the law never really settles anything. It only, pre- well, it settles it, but it doesn't really settle it within the hearts of the two offenders, uh, the two parties, does it? It really just brings more trouble and deeper feelings of uh, division. They may settle the dispute, but that doesn't mean they reconcile the two parties. They, you don't, you're not to take a brother to court, are you? You're to try to do everything. Now, there are some situations, indeed, where you have to go to the legal system if there's murder or criminal offense involved. But, all right, Christ wants every member to work and to build, not to destroy his church. What does the church exist for? It exists for worship, for ministry, for fellowship, for witness. Harmony, peace, love, and purpose build the church. Sin and divisiveness destroy the church. And for this reason alone, divisiveness must not be allowed to prevail within the church. It has to be dealt with if the church is to be obedient to Christ and be blessed. If the church wants to be blessed and to be obedient, they're going to follow these steps here. But it's it's much easier said than done. Well, what was just said bears repeating. Taking a person's behavior before the whole church is a very, very serious matter. It is about as serious as a matter that you can imagine. So several, several important factors must be considered or must be remembered. Number one, remember that a person's life is involved. The person who is brought before a whole church, that person... I mean, everybody in the church has to be so mature. The pastor, the leaders, that person's life could be damaged. It could be, um, they could be turned off and, and pushed away from the Lord and from God's people forever. If this is not bathed in prayer, if Christ is not in the midst, you know, and he is not directing and leading and guiding and everybody is doing this in a spirit of humility and in love and sincerity, desire to bring that one back into the fold. Also, public discussion of personal behavior is a very, very sensitive subject. It can easily arouse emotions and cause more division. Think about the family of the one who would be brought before the church for discipline. Now, the family members might get really uptight and emotional, and it might even cause further division, right? So, oh, this has to be so carefully done, just exactly as the Lord 
directs, and always, always in, in the right spirit. People love juicy news. You know, that's just, it's a sad part of our carnal nature. But people love to take juicy news and just run with it and get on the phone and tell everybody they can about it. So it's very important that, um, that, you, that this be done with confidence. You know, if you have a friend you can tell something to and you know it stops with that person, you have a, a, a gem, you have a treasure. And really, you need to really appreciate that friend. I hope you all have more than one friend like that. But um, people who will keep confidences are, are gems in our lives. They are special treasures. So when should a personal matter be taken before other people? When, when should we go to the next step other than the private step? When should we go to two or three precious gem friends and share the matter with them so they can pray with us and maybe go back to the person with us? When should a matter be taken before the church? Well, when we are absolutely sure that God does not want us to continue bearing the hurt and the injury any longer. Um, Maybe you're not at the point where you can say, Oh, great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. I'll just let this roll off my back. Maybe you've been so hurt that you just cannot get over it on your own, and you really need to go to that person. And you know God is moving you to go to that person. You have to do it. You have to try to resolve the situation. Maybe it's so that that person won't hurt somebody else. Also, when we are absolutely sure that the Lord's Spirit is leading us to share the matter, of um, personal behavior with others. And when we, now this is important, when we are ready to acknowledge our own failures and our own sinfulness and our own potential for failing. I know that right there would keep me a lot of times from, you know, oh, somebody's offended me. It could have been me. I probably offend people every, every day and don't know it. You know, you could walk by somebody in Walmart, and I probably offended some of you. Maybe I walked right by you in the grocery store and didn't, didn't see you and didn't say hi to you, and you were offended. I know those things can happen, can't they? So we, we need to understand that we can also cause people to be offended and that we're weak and um, acknowledge that. But, you know, always be ready to take the beam out of our own eye first. Um, when we're ready to acknowledge our own sins and we know that we're esteeming this other person even greater than ourselves. We maybe want to know we have to go to them because we have to help them. We're more concerned about them and their relationship with the Lord than we are with our own. And also, we um, know that we're ready to go when we are gripped by a spirit of prayer and softness and tenderness, warmth, love, and humility for that person. And If the offender still should refuse to make reconciliation after the third step, first of all, you've gone to him, no reconciliation, no repentance. Then two or three witnesses have gone with you, no no backing down, no repentance, no reconciliation. person has been brought before the whole church and still no repentance, no reconciliation. Then the fourth step is that he is to be put out of the fellowship. He can no longer be treated as a spiritual brother because he has refused to act like one. 
I'll tell you what, if two or three came to my house, I'd back down in a hurry. I'd say, okay, okay, I'm sorry. Even if I didn't know it, I'm, I'm sorry. You know, avoid even the appearance of evil. If I, if I even came across as wrong, I'm sorry, please forgive me. But if it gets to the step where it's in front of the whole church, you know, I, I would definitely say, oh, I'm sorry, please, I'm sorry. I, I'm, and I would mean it, wouldn't you? But if someone refuses after that step, then the Lord says, well, you need to treat him as one outside of the church. Not, not hated and not despised, because remember, we're not even to look down, not even to despise one of the Lord's little ones, but we're just not to hold that one in close fellowship because his behavior and his attitude would only do further harm to himself and to the rest of the body, and perhaps cause other members of the family of God to stumble. It says in, in 2 Thessalonians 3.6, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly. And this is just one other place in the New Testament where we are told that if one continues to walk, you know, in sin, we are to we are not to associate with him. We are to put him out of the fellowship. When a church body has done everything it can to restore a sinning member, but has had no success in bringing purity back into that person's life, then that one is to be left to his sin and to his shame. If he truly is a Christian, which is what this passage is talking about, it says brother. Of course, we can't always see the heart. We may think he's a brother, maybe he really isn't. But um, if he truly is a Christian, God will not cast him away. But he may allow him or her to sink even deeper into despair until that one becomes miserable and, and desperate enough to turn from his disobedience. You know, a good prayer for one that is strayed away like that is to pray that they would be as miserable as they could possibly get so that they would return to the fold. So the discipline is that the dis divisive brother is to be treated just as he is acting. He's acting as an outsider. He's acting just as a heathen, non-believer, or publican. You know, and, and think of this, the heathens and the publicans were the very people for whom Christ reached out, weren't they? He didn't come to save those who were well, but those that were sick. They, they, he, he came to reach those who were outside the fold, but, but they were reachable. The divisive brother is acting as an outsider. He will not listen and respond to the humble and loving appeals for reconciliation, and therefore he is to be left alone until he is ready to be uh, reconciled. He himself, remember this, he himself made the choice not to be reconciled. That was his choice. He could read the scripture, and he could know what the next step would be. He stood at the crossroads of you know reconciliation on three specific occasions so he is personally responsible for his own decision now if we question whether the church should in fact obey such discipline to the point of excluding someone from their membership from their fellowship i guess you can't actually keep somebody from coming into church that would be against, I mean, I'm sure that would hit the news big time, wouldn't it? 
if you stood at the doors and you didn't let them in the church. But you can, I guess, take them off of your membership. If we would question this, we must realize that who is it who gave us this procedure for discipline? Who? Who gave it to us? It, the Lord Jesus Christ gave him gave us this procedure for a discipline. And then he added these words. He said, Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That's in verse 18. When a brother chooses sin and refuses to be reconciled, after the church reaches out to him, he is lost to the church. He is lost to the fold. He is as one who has strayed from the fold. Therefore, he is bound to the earth, and he is to be treated as an earth dweller, as an outsider. Thus, heaven, you know, God himself will reckon him to be bound by sin as an outsider, just as the church bound him, you know, removed him from the fellowship. Similarly, if he is reached by the church and he is loosed from the bondage of his sin, then heaven, God himself, will reckon him as being loosed. God will receive him back as a redeemed brother, as an insider. In the final analysis, the divisiveness, <clears throat> divisiveness and those who cause divisiveness have to be confronted. They have to be handled by other Christians because a house divided against itself cannot stand. But again, I stress, and I'll close with this, it is most important to understand that the local body of believers is to be at its best spiritually before it disciplines any one of its members. And if it's going to do this, it needs to, first of all, also dismiss everyone from the church who is not a member. And it should be just the membership, the body of Christ involved in this disciplinary action. When a church disciplines a, a member, you know what it is doing really? It is really examining itself because the church is nothing more than its members. And this is why Jesus added the words about authority and prayer and fellowship. Nobody can discipline one of its body parts without disciplining itself. Because we're all members of the same body, aren't we? Because uh, where one member is affected, all the body feels the pain. Church discipline does not refer to a bunch of would-be Christian policemen, you know, throwing around their own self-righteous weight. That is not the idea at all. Instead, it involves God exercising his own authority in and through the body in order to, res to uh, restore one of its straying sheep. It's a very, very serious matter. The problem with most of our churches, however, is that our members are more concerned about keeping a superficial calm than we are in maintaining spiritual purity. And so most churches do not even get involved in this whole process. But in doing so, they are being disobedient to Christ, and um, he cannot bless them. So next week, we're going to look at Peter's response to all of this.
And you know that will be interesting. Whenever Peter responds to something, it's always interesting. So thank you for your patience. Let's pray. God, again, we thank you for your word, even when it stings, even when it hurts. Lord, help us to have spirits that are willing to hear and not be doers of the word, but hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. Thank you for each woman here, Lord. Thank you for her attentiveness. Thank you for her desire to know you better through a study of your word. Lord, we just pray that you would go with each and every one of us and help us to be salty this week, which means not to strive, not to be people who strive with others, who are argumentative, who are not at peace with everyone. Help us to realize, Father, that... um, that we are to be peacemakers. We're to be kind and gentle and, and use soft words and just be loving and to know that if we truly love your law, nothing will offend us because we understand we deserve nothing. Everything we have is just because of your grace. How thankful we are for the Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that he was willing to be that good shepherd to come and die for us so that we might indeed be brought into the fold. Thank you. We love you, Jesus. Now we ask that you bring us all back next uh, Monday. For We pray Christ in your name. Amen.